This is case 28 from the True Dharma Coin Collection. The dragon howling in the withered tree. The main case. Zhang Yan was once asked by a monk, what is the way? Zhang Yan said, the dragon howling in a withered tree. The monk said, what does it mean? Zhang Yan said, eyeballs in the skull. Later, another monk asked Shishuang, what is a dragon howling in a dead tree? Shishuang said, it still has joy. The monk said, what are the eyeballs in the skull? Shishuang said, they still have senses. Later, another monk asked Zen Master Benji of Kaoshan, what is the dragon's howling in a dead tree? Kaoshan said, bloodstream has not stopped. The monk said, what are the eyeballs in the skull? Kaoshan said, dry all the way. The monk said, I wonder, can anyone hear it? And Kaoshan said, throughout the entire earth, there is no one who does not hear it. The monk said, which verse does the dragon sing? And Kaoshan said, I do not know which verse it is, but all those who hear it are lost. The commentary. Do not mistake a withered tree for a dead tree. It abounds with life and celebrates each and every spring with new foliage. It's just that few have realized this. As for the dragon's war, actually everyone is able to hear it because it exists everywhere. And yet, there cannot be, there cannot be dragon's war unless there is a withered tree. If you can see through to the point of this koan and make it your own, then your own voice will be the dragon's roar and you will be able to make use of it among the 10,000 things. If, however, you are unable to perceive it, then the worldly truth will prevail and everything will appear to be as impenetrable barrier. You should understand that illumination and function are a single truth. Principle and phenomena are not to realities. These old masters know how to simultaneously roll out and gather in. Letting go of the primary, they open up the gate to the secondary. When the great function manifests, it does not hold to any fixed standards. Sometimes a blade of grass can be used as a 16-foot golden Buddha. Sometimes a 16-foot golden Buddha can be used as a blade of grass. All of this, notwithstanding, tell me, how do you understand the great function? The capping verse. Letting out the hook just to fish out the dragons, the mysterious devices outside of convention are only for those who wish to know the self.
So the last two Sundays, we held two very different discussions that seem to be in opposition to one another. Maybe difficult for us to reconcile the two. The first discussion was focused on the issue of discrimination and social injustice. And the second, around chapter 17 in the Diamond Sutra, which states that transformation of the world essentially is non-transformation. And no one can save anyone. How do we understand the meaning of what was raised in these two discussions? And are we willing to go beyond our immediate connotations that arise in the mind in relation to either one of those discussions and the emotional resistance we feel in relation to all of it at times. There's no doubt it stirs things up for all of us. So as I wrote in a recent email, when things are stirred up, we are bound to experience emotional reactivities. We may not like what floats up to the surface, but at least, liking it or not, at least it gives us a chance or an opportunity to examine what arises. See it as clearly as we can. Face it. Work with it so we can transmute harmful habits to helpful and useful actions that can create positive changes. When we are faced with the monumental issue of discrimination and racism, we have to ask ourselves, how do we meet it with action rather than with acknowledgement or passively agree to not discriminate? Non-discrimination is a static statement that may make us feel good that we are not an accomplice to the pain it inflicts on so many people. The dynamic and actionable aspect of non-discrimination is in doing what mitigates it rather than avoiding what allows it. Namely, the practice of acceptance. This is the same as we work on the vow of not killing. We don't practice not killing. We practice nurturing life. It's not in what we avoid, it's in what we do. As in doing the Prajna Paramita. Unfortunately, we have plenty of opportunities to practice acceptance since judgmental thoughts are boundless in each of us. And does it take long, too long, before we get caught up in them and follow along the path of divisiveness? As practitioners, the practice of acceptance and tolerance is up there on the list of our job description. And so it's incumbent upon each of us to examine how we listen to each other during group discussions, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. You know, when someone says something that we like or feel affinity with, 
we smile in agreement. When someone shares an expression we do not agree with, whether it's the contents or the way it's being expressed or how long it takes this person to express, we frown, get agitated. Aren't these great opportunities for us? We talk about acceptance, we talk about non-discrimination. Are we not discriminating? These reactions may be natural and immediate, but in terms of practice, the question is, can we bring acceptance to the sharing of another person beyond our likes and dislikes? And regardless of whether or not we understand how the other feels, in many cases, we don't. And even if we do understand, that understanding has a limit. We cannot experience what the other has experienced or is experiencing. Even if we feel like we can relate, there's a point that that ends. There's a point that we may not understand. Can we still accept? Is there enough tolerance in us to allow for it? To truly practice acceptance, we have to get beyond the need to make comparisons of any kind. Whether it's about the depth of one's practice, eloquence of expression, or the level of pain and discrimination each of us has experienced in our life. Of course, there are differences on many levels. But we need to be watchful so we don't use differences to create walls and strengthen the sense of divisiveness. Divisiveness is created constructs and it, it is created by those constructs and it is a product of our fears and insecurities. It develops over time through our own personal and societal influences, whatever this may be. And so it perpetuates itself. It perpetuates itself by bringing up more of the same. And to perpetuate itself, it needs the details of our mental and emotional storyline and construct. Equality, on the other hand, is not a construct. And it does not depend on our personal storyline, or thoughts, appearances, or societal differences. It is there at the basis of our being. Or at least the equality we speak of in terms of practice. It is there at our basis of our being, just before the mind moves, and just before we get caught up in the notion of divisiveness it creates. It is there when our mental constructs are stripped away and the ground level is discovered, again discovered. So instead of creating more constructs, we have to look at ourselves and, and each other with untainted, clear eyes. We have to take the backward steps that illuminates things as they are 
and let go of any plans to become a Buddha as in the words of Dogen. Or any plans to become anything. As Lao Tzu said, the Tao moves the other way. The way moves the other way. And this is where this koan begins. A monk asked Jiang Yang, the Kyogen in Japanese, what is the way? And the footnote says, an old question, but still it deserves an answer. Or definitely, let's not get caught up in, I know what that is. Conventionally, we use the word way to refer to a venue that creates a passage from one point to another. And it has a beginning and an end. Could be about arriving at an actual location some accumulation of money, assets, education, all steps to achieve some goal, even if it is realization. And this usage of the word way is pointing to the means that eventually lead to and culminate with a desired result. And it is often marked by a forward movement and a linear progression and it is bound by logic and time. In spiritual practice, the way, the Tao or Marga in Sanskrit, is referring to a very different experience. There are no specific parameters, no reference points of a beginning or an end. It encourages letting go rather than accumulate. It is beyond logical constraints of, times, of time, and it is definitely not a linear experience. Instead of facilitating further creation of mental constructs, it exposes their fallacy and dissolves them. Instead of leading to a destination, it is questioning the underlying assumption that there is a need to go anywhere. As Bill Porter writes in the commentary of the Diamond Sutra, instead of reaching the end, the Bodhisattva finds no beginning. So what do we expect to find on this path? And where will we go after attaining some level of realization? When Kaoshan finishes studies, with Dongshan and was about to leave, Dongshan said, where are you going? And Kaoshan said, I'm not going to a different place. But Dongshan asked, you're not going to a different place, but there is still going? Kaoshan said, I'm going, but not to a different place. It was a very clear way of understanding, living, without arriving, going without the notion of going elsewhere, going without the need to find something else. 
So just before his disciple and Dharma successor was about to depart, Dongshan wanted to make sure Kaoshan has put to rest the most tormenting question of our lives. One of the most tormenting questions of our lives. What's next? What's going to happen next? Is it for? Is it against? What will that mean about me? So in our everyday life, we run around from one activity to another, from one task to another, hoping to eliminate all the obstacles that seem to stand between where we are and where we want to be. Hoping to arrive at a better place, wishing to find a better version of ourselves, find some measure of peace. And it's all marked by later. All of it can be identified by what is not happening now, yet. No, I'm not there yet. And as long as we believe that there is a better place, a better time, a better me, we will keep running around without ever arriving anywhere and without experiencing a lasting sense of contentment. Or at ease. The Tao moves the other way and it is asking us to put aside the assumption that this is not it. Or that there is better than this. There's a story, I think it's a folk story of an entrepreneur who was on vacation, he was walking on the beach, and he saw this fisherman sitting looking at the ocean, and he was curious about this guy, so he sat down next to him and he asked him, where are you from, what are you doing, and, and the guy said, yeah, I'm just a, si a simple fisherman, I have a boat, and I go out, I get some fish, I come back, I sell some, I eat some, and it, it supports my family. So the entrepreneur said, are you thinking about getting another boat? Expanding? Expanding the business? But no, I haven't thought about that. Said, what would I do? Well, you know, I can help you. You can put some money aside or take a loan and buy another boat, get somebody to manage this boat, go out and get some more fish, and then you'll have more fish to sell at the market, you'll get more money. And he said, then what? He said, then you can save some of that and buy a third boat. And on and on, and then you're gonna end up with a fleet of boats. So the fisherman says, okay, he was intrigued. Then what? He says, then you're going to buy a bigger house. Go on vacation more often. Do this, do that. And then what? And then, eventually, you'll be able to sit on the beach and gaze at the ocean. And then the fisherman looks at him and says, but I'm doing it now. Why would I need to go through all this trouble to do what I'm doing right now?
Why are we rejecting this? What's wrong with this? Well, you could say I'm not by the ocean gazing at the water. But we are here gazing. That's not enough. As Dongshan prepared to leave his teacher, Yunya, Yunya said, Where are you going? Dongshan said, Although I'm leaving the master, I don't know where I'll end up. And Yunyan said, you're not going to Hunan? He said, no, I'm not. Yunyan said, are you returning home? No, Dongshan said. Yunyan said, sooner or later, you'll return. Dongshan said, where the master has no abode, then I'll return. Yunyan said, if you leave, it will be difficult to see each other again. Dongsha said, it will be difficult to not see each other. We need to change our definition of difficult. It is actually difficult to not be here. It is much easier to be content. And a lot more difficult to think that there is something better. So Dongshan said, it will be difficult to not see each other. And just when Dongshan was about to depart, he said, in the future, if in the future someone asks whether I can describe the master's truth, how should I answer? After a long pause, Yunyan said, just this is it. And Dongshan sighed. Because he heard it many times, but did not quite deeply experience it yet. Then Yunyan said, Worthy Liang, now that you have taken on this great affair, you must consider it carefully. And this line is for us. We, by choosing to practice, we have taken on this great affair. And we must consider it carefully. Now, more than ever, facing all the challenges of this pandemic, with what we are not getting, what we may miss, facing social injustice, all of what does it look like? How do we bring the practice to this? How do we find again and again the vigor to stay on the path? The path that goes backwards, not forward. Forward, we get trapped. We get lost. Backwards. How can we be lost? In a conventional term. Or terms, how can we be lost? So what is the way? Just this is it. But while this is true in the most fundamental sense, it still takes a great deal of determination to actually experience and embody the meaning of it. 
which is why Xiangyan answers this question by saying, a dragon howling in a withered tree. And the footnote says, I wonder if the monk will get it. And the footnote is saying, I wonder if we will get it. When we begin to cultivate a meditation practice, we encounter a very busy mind that produces incessant stream of thoughts then we experience a wide gamut of emotions that are triggered by thoughts and churn the mind even further to create more of the same. So the cycle continues and it still continues on and on and on and on. Thoughts do not go away and they don't have to go away. But only through deliberate intention and determination we we can let the chaotic movement of the mind lose momentum by itself. And then at some point, we begin to see that it is in fact lifeless, unless we follow along and give it energy and nourishment, which we often do. By thinking the thoughts, by obsessing after them, by trying to explain by wondering why, by justifying divisions, by complaining, by judging, by selling and buying. All of us, all practitioners experience this process. It's just that over time, Something can change as long as we maintain the vigor. It keeps changing. It keeps opening up. And then, and then when we lose interest in our thoughts, it can exhaust itself and dry up like a tree that withers when it has no more sap running through its trunk. We have to allow it to wither rather than nurture and nourish it. We have to allow it, let it die down. Although it's very tempting to follow it. We have to abandon thoughts, abandon emotions, not reject, deny, suppress, let them be. Is it possible? Can we do that? And abandoning thoughts and not perpetuating emotions may feel as if we are numbing up or turning against ourselves. But it actually leads to an awakening to the source. It leads to a dragon howling in a withered self. But the self has to wither, or what we call the self, has to wither. The dragon is there. So we need to put in the time and do the work on our own so we can exhaust this constant self-doubt. 
And the only way to do that is to observe the ongoing machinations and maneuverings of the mind. So watch carefully where the mind wants to go, how tempted you, you feel to follow it, and how often it manages to sweep us off our feet. To silently observe the arising and vanishing thoughts, memories, emotions, and allow it all to happen while you keep settling into the anchored stillness of Zazen. And if we are totally committed to this, we will eventually dry up all the way. And Shichuang spoke about this process of exhausting our thought-based sense of self and said, seize, stop, have one thought for 10,000 years, be a cold ash, a decayed tree, a strip of white silk, without words upon it. That will be a good thing to write and like on a post-it note, note and put it by the nightstand. Wake up, look at it. Begin the day, end the day with that advice. Have one thought for 10,000 years. Be a cold ash, decayed tree, a strip of white silk without words upon it. Where do you find yourself when there are no words on this strip of white silk? Zen practice often reminds me of Aikido practice. So many similarities. It's true that we study techniques. And it's true that it takes time. But, but what's also true is that at the beginning and for quite a while into the practice, we heavily rely on muscle strength in order to make something happen, in order to apply a technique correctly. Because this is what we come into practice with. We don't know that there is a greater power in us. So we rely on our small little power and we run out of it very quickly or there is somebody stronger that we're going to sooner or later meet and when that person shows up we fall on our face literally we exhaust ourselves and in a way we need to exhaust ourselves we need to try in Aikido, we try again and again to apply techniques using the power of our muscles. And then when we exhaust ourselves, we get utterly frustrated that it doesn't work or it is very limited. And we realize I cannot rely on this anymore just because, simply because I'm running out of it. Then, then something else arises. At the beginning, glimpses. Then we start to trust it. Then we lose interest in trying to apply technique using muscles. Then that power flows through us. That's the dragon howling in a withered tree. But we have to get to a point that we lose interest in ourselves.
we have to lose interest in ourselves. Or at least find it boring enough to pay attention to what's going on around us. To find ourselves boring. It's the same with Zen. You know, we learn to let go of our reliant on thoughts and discover the true power of the soul. So Xiang Yang said, the dragon howling in a withered tree. But the monk didn't get it and he asked, what does it mean? Xiang Yang said, eyeballs in the skull. And the footnote says, stop trying to mystify him. Just hit him and let him go. Enough. Enough explanations, enough words. Enough feeding the mind. Enough intellectual gymnastics. So, at that time, interesting dialogues made waves. And word about those dialogues got around the other monasteries. And later on, another monk asked Shishuang, a different teacher, what is a dragon howling in a dead tree? And Shishuang said, it still has joy. And the footnote says, thank you for your answer. I could have ended there, right? Thank you for your answer. Now bow and withdraw. May your life go well. Well, your life is well. So drying up all the way, it still has joy. It's not the joy that dries up. It's not life that dries up. It's what impedes life that must dry up. And we, impede life. Me and my story. I don't like it, I like it, uh, all this on and on and on. Where are you now? What are you nurturing right now? Monk said, what are eyeballs in the skull? Shishuang said, they still have senses. Again, it's not what we think. Later, another monk asked Zen master Benji of Kaoshan, what is the dragons howling in the dead tree? Kaoshan said, bloodstream has not stopped. The monk said, what are the eyeballs in the skull? And Kaoshan said, dry all the way. Footnote to what are the eyeballs in the skull says, these monks should all form a group and together shut up and sit. Yes, we should together shut up and sit. Are we not doing that? We may sit, but we don't shut up. And that's not the song of the dragon that we hear. Kaoshan said, dry all the way, and the footnote says, yet the bottom cannot be seen. Because there are no parameters. Monk said, I wonder, can anyone hear it? The song. The footnote says, everyone but you, because you must first shut up to hear it. 
or you must first allow the mind or the thoughts or the thinking process to exhaust itself or at least exhaust your interest in your thoughts. Even the thoughts about social justice. Because actually often those thoughts prevent us from doing what we need to do. So the monk asked, I wonder, if, can anyone hear it? And Kaoshan said, throughout the entire earth, there is no one who does not hear it. But no says, except for our questionnaire. Our questionnaire is too busy posing questions. Too busy looking for answers. And the monk said, which verse does the dragon sing? Kaoshan said, I don't know which verse it is, but all those who hear it are lost. And the footnote says, body and mind fallen away, nothing remains. When the withering process dissolves the rigidity of our discriminatory thinking, the bale of our small sphere opens up and an immense beauty is revealed. Exactly like the time the Buddha touched the ground with his big toe in the Vimalakirti Sutra and what seemed hidden was instantly manifest. And this is akin to realizing the power of spaciousness. It is astonishing how little attention we give to space when space is what makes appearances possible. If it wasn't for the empty space between us, we could not appear in this form. You would not see me or hear me and I would not see or hear you. You would not be. If it's not for what is not you, you will not be. If it's not for the space, there will be no stars floating around. What would they float in? Again and again, nothing gives birth to something. And what do we do? We get caught up in something and neglect nothing. What am I going to do with it? It's nothing. It's not useful to me. If it's not that, you cannot think that this is not useful to you. Because there is nothing, there is something. If there is no emptiness, there is no form. So sitting in silence and stillness, we can become totally absorbed in that great emptiness and listen to the great song of the dragon. It's actually the song of unity that needs to reverberate through our different appearances. The commentary said, you should understand that illumination and function are single truth. Principle and phenomena are not two realities. And then it ends, 
with a vital question. Tell me, how do you understand the great function? That's the great function. How do we understand that? How do we understand nothing? How do we get over the fact that we don't see it as useful and interesting? So we'll end with an old saying in Zen. Everybody knows the useful function, but they do not know the useless great function. The useless great function. We are all useless. Then we can become useful. Thank you.